Well, hey, good morning, church. Aloha. We're so glad that you joined us today. Uh, would you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4? We're continuing our series this morning on the book of Daniel uh, called Kingdom Culture, which answers the question, how are we to live as a people of God, as salt and light in a godless society? If we, by, just by way of review, uh, week one, we talked about how the Lord delivered the very foundation of Daniel's life and his ministry is the sovereignty of God, which allowed him to really be fruitful and be a faithful servant. And he served for over 70 years, covering uh, three different empires, the Babylonian, the Mede, and the Persian Empire. And he served under four different kings, right? Nebuchadnezzar. He served under uh, Belshazzar. He served under Darius and finally under Cyrus. And foundation to his life and his ministry was this idea that God is in control of who's in control. That no matter what empire or culture he lived in, Daniel was able to thrive and live under the rule of of Yahweh, rule of God, because he understood that God was sovereign and the Lord delivered. Last week, we talked about the hope that sustains. And the type of hope that Daniel had was through incredible trials and hardships and tribulations, Daniel had an absolute confidence in the person, in the work, and the plans and purpose of who God is. Remember that Daniel did not have any spiritual myopia. He didn't focus on the sin right in front of him that he couldn't have perspective. He didn't have uh, spiritual amnesia where he forgot what God did in the past. But he was able to have perspective uh, knowing that God is in control. And today we're going to talk about humility. So hope and humility. And next week we'll talk about wisdom. Uh, that these are the three characteristics that allow Daniel and for us these virtues of the kingdom, as it were, to thrive and to flourish in our culture. That no matter what happens outside us, no matter what people may do to us, no matter how they may mistreat or mock us, we're able to stay the straight and, and narrow road of living as a people of God in kingdom culture. Okay, so um, let's go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. We're talking about humility, not just any humility, but a humility that respects people. We all know about C.S. Lewis who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I stink at this, or I'm the worst when you're actually good at it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less meaning putting others people first. We're going to read that later on in Philippians 2 of biblical humility. Um, Jesse Jackson says that never look down on anybody unless you're going to help them up. So humility or biblical humility is treating people with respect and valuing them. Before we even get into our text, our verse, let's just go straight into the main point and the undergirding foundation and the big idea as we talk about 
respect that honors, respect and, and the humility that respects people. And it is this. Would you write this down? Everyone deserves respect, even God's enemies. Everyone deserves respect, even, or I would even put there, especially God's enemy. This is one of those things that's so simple, yet so profound and so difficult. Okay, simple does not mean easy. Love God, love your neighbor, forgive those who hurt you. Those are simple commands, but by not any means are they easy. And to respect everybody and even to uh, even God's enemies, it's uh, peppered all throughout the Bible. Not only does it describe, is, is it this descriptive, but it's also prescribed. Romans 13 says, give everyone to what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe them revenue, pay them revenue. If you owe them respect, then give them respect. If you owe them honor, then give them honor. And what I want to let us know today, church, is that everyone deserves respect. The type of humility that Daniel had, he respected people. How many of you have seen the TV series, The Chosen? If you have not yet, I don't want to blow it up, but it is absolutely amazing. You know, I'm not one for Christian movies, um, corny Christian movies or anything like that. But man, The Chosen is so straight to the heart. It so, has so much insight and wisdom into the life of Jesus that it's absolutely amazing. It's actually the number one crowd-funded TV series in history, all right? Now, in the movie Chosen, without killing it too much, but we encounter this character of Matthew, the tax collector. Now, the way that they interpreted it um, they took some artistic liberty, of course, but in, in The Chosen, Matthew is kind of like this uh, germaphobe who kind of mumbles and he kind of does this, and he's really good with numbers. And one of the reasons it's so intriguing is that everybody, especially Peter, everybody despises and hates Matthew's stinking guts. And you know why they hate him? It's because Matthew, he was, not only did he work for the Roman oppressor. Not only did he um, uh, make his income off them, but he was able to gain wealth and he was able to be wealthy by working for the Roman Empire. He worked for the enemy who were oppressing the Jews, who were putting them down. And everybody hates him for that. And here is Daniel now. About five to seven hundred years before, Daniel, he works for the enemy of the state. He works for this wicked nation. He works for this unrighteous and he serves for this unrighteous king, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to Darius. And Daniel, he was only, not only uh, did he serve Nebuchadnezzar and he served him so well, but he actually started getting promoted. Remember it says in Daniel 2, that, or Daniel 1 rather, that they were 10 times better, that he graduated um, magna cum laude, that he was a valedictorian of, um, in Babylon. And just like Joseph in Genesis, 
He served a godless people, but he, he served so well and he served with humility and he served with respect that he continuously got promoted. And the more, listen, the more he got promoted, the more he respected, the more he honored, the more that he was able to uh, humble himself and trust that God is sovereign, even though he worked for the enemy, quote unquote, the more he was able to have influence, which allowed him to speak into certain situations. The influence that he had, um, he would have never had if he decided to have a stink attitude. If he decided, you know what, I don't like this um, occult teaching that goes against Yahweh. I'm just going to sit in the back. I'm going to read my Torah like a good Hebrew boy. I'm not, a, I'm not going to participate in these things. No. Daniel, he took copious notes. He sat on the front and he graduated straight A's at the top of his class. And because he had that, uh, that humility, he had the authority to say later on, when all the other magicians couldn't figure out and they couldn't interpret the dreams of the kings, he was able to say, hey, there... There is a real God. His name is Yahweh. And he's going to give me the answer to your dreams because he alone is God. You see, we, we will lose our ability to influence our culture when we get angry at our culture. And we get angry at the people that are the leading lights of the culture who are taking it in the wrong direction. See, Daniel and Joseph, they changed whole countries and godless countries because they served the wicked so well they, that they got promoted. And listen, they earned the right to have influence. They earned the right to be heard because they heard first and they listened first and they respected first. All throughout the book of Daniel, you see a guy who's unfairly treated, but he had the humility to treat even his enemies with respect. Everyone deserves respect, even your enemies. Let's see here in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king Nebuchadnezzar said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. In Daniel chapter 4, When God finally judges Nebuchadnezzar for his pride and arrogance and for his hubris, Daniel is the one who gets to deliver the message to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, the king had this weird dream and he needs someone to interpret it. And Daniel, God allows him to be the one to interpret and to say, Nebuchadnezzar, your time is done. You're out of here. God's judgment is upon you. Now, imagine if it was you or imagine if it was me, right? Where we would, we would probably say, King, King Nebi, I have this message for you. Ooh, and I've been waiting for so long to give you this. We would probably give the 
Samuel L. Jackson speech, right, <laughs> from Pulp Fiction. And I will strike thee with pestilence and vengeance. And, you know, um, remember, I think most of us would be like, ooh, I've been waiting so long. Hey, remember when you kidnapped me and you took me from my country and you had me, you forced me to learn the occult for three years and you changed my name to, from Daniel, which means God is my judge, to Belteshazzar, which is um, Bel is my, protects my life. You tear from Yahweh into this demon prince or this demon. Remember when you had me castrated so I could be one of your eunuchs because you don't trust me? Well, guess what? Judgment is upon you. I think most of us would be ready, would, would kind of replay and we would savor the moment when our enemies finally get their due. When it's time, when it's reckoning time, I think most of us, um, if we're, we, we don't have the humility to, to respect or to honor people, even when God is about to judge them, especially our enemies. It'd be like uh, Michael Scott, all right? The office, office alert, okay, reference alert. Remember when he started his own Michael Scott paper, uh, paper company? And uh, all the big wigs come to the office and they basically want to offer him to buy him out so he could get money. And he rehearsed, well, 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 how the turntables have, he was supposed to say how the tables have turned. I think most of us, we would have a speech ready when we could finally put people who have wronged us who have disrespected us, who have talked stink about us, who have gossiped and have slandered us and have mistreated us, dishonored us. I think most of us, well, you finally came to your senses. Let me tell you a piece of my mind. But what does Daniel do? He says, my Lord, he calls him king, right? My king, if only the dream that I had applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. He's saying basically, my king, if there was anybody else except you, I wish this judgment would be upon my, your enemies. If there's anybody else, it would be your adversaries, but God's judgment is upon you. And here was this moment where he, he had the opportunity to give it to him and to set him straight. And it would be his day of reckoning and to put him in his place. Daniel had the humility to respect his enemies or God's enemies. He had the um, humility to treat him with honor. And we see this again in Daniel chapter 6. But instead of King Nebuchadnezzar, now it's King Darius. Remember King Darius, um, he, he, didn't he made this law, he made this edict that nobody could pray to any other uh, god. And Daniel, he prayed to Yahweh, he prayed to the God of Israel. And because of that, it was illegal, so he was thrown in prison. And so King Darius, he couldn't sleep. He's been a sleepless night. He even fasted. And in verse 20, he asked him, Hey, Daniel, are you still there? Did God deliver you? Let's read in verse 21. Daniel answered, May the king live forever. 
My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. You notice Daniel didn't say, duh, of course I'm alive, you idiot. What do you think? Right? He responds, may the king, you Darius, may you live forever, even though you tried to have me killed, even though you didn't have the, the courage to go against or to retract the law, the law and the edict. He says, may the king live forever. I'm okay. My God delivered me. It almost reminds me of, of Joseph, right? When Joseph's brothers were afraid that they were, Joseph was going to take vengeance on them, but he had the humility to understand that God is at work. Joseph said, what you have intended for evil, God had turned, intended it for good so that lives, many people's lives and whole nations, the nation of Egypt, the nation of Israel would be spared and all the surrounding nations. You see the sense of humility that Daniel had? He called him, my king, may the king live forever. You know, one of the big culture shocks, I think, for my kids when we visit the mainland is, you know, they're pretty much, Ezzy was born here, Ezra, but we've been here for, gosh, almost 11 years, um, or 11 and a half years, rather. And um, when we go to the mainland and they meet somebody and, you know, like, a, and they was like, oh, that's my dad, Uncle John. And, you know, these little kids would just say, hey, John. And my kids are like, that's Uncle John. He's older than you. Uh, not only in Hawaii culture, but Filipino culture, you know, there's everyone's is your tito or your tita, right? Tito boy, tita babe, right? Um, and to not address a title uh, to someone would be disrespectful. And here's Daniel. He addresses him. May the king, long live the king, you're the king, but God is the greater king and he honors him. And it's no wonder that not only Nebuchadnezzar, but King Darius was willing to listen to him. It's no wonder that four kings were able to promote him and give him a place of influence and let his voice be heard. He was a man who treated everybody, and by everybody, I mean everybody. He treated him, he treated them with respect. He had the same humility of Jesus in John chapter 13, where he, Jesus, would be the one to wash the disciples' feet. That he, Jesus, had so much humility that he even washed the feet of a Judas, who would be the ultimate betrayer. You guys, if fellow Christians, fellow Christ followers, if we would have this spiritual virtue or this kingdom um, character of humility, I'm telling you, we will change the world. The kingdom virtue of humility will not only let us survive here now, but we would allow us to thrive and flourish in our culture. Here's the next point. Humility is not something we feel. 
It is something we do. Humility is not something we feel, but it's something we do. When people accomplish great things or they've been, get, they've been blessed with a, a big blessing or they're able to have an accolade or accomplishment, what do they usually say? Oh, I feel so humbled. I feel so humbled. But uh, humility is not something you and I feel. It is actually something that we do. Just like love, love is not necessarily a feeling. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he had warm, fuzzy feelings and chicken skin. No, for God so loved the world that he gave. In the same way, humility is not something that we necessarily feel, but it's, a, it's an action of respect. It's an action of honor that we bestow to everybody. When, I'm, when we're humble, we are incredibly respectful and we bestow honor and respect to everybody. Philippians chapter 2, talking about Jesus, this is what Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Underline that, highlight that, double, double underline that. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. One of the most powerful traits that we can have and weapons and tools that we can have to disarm this culture around us is humility. Daniel had humility in amazing ways. Now, humility, it, it's like a church word, like justification or sanctification, right? Or propitiation, all the Asians. Um, but humility in the real world Humility shows itself simply by treating other people more importantly than we treat ourselves. Paul says, in humility, in the spirit of humility, esteem, value, count, treat others more important than yourselves. Think of it like um, honored guests at a dinner party. You're treating them more important than you. You're treating them with humility. You're treating them with respect. Um, whereas you don't want to wash the dishes. You don't want to clean the house. You prefer not to um, have the last uh, piece of the pie or the last ice cream. But you treat them more important than yourselves. And you wash the dishes so that they can go home. And you uh, give them the last dessert or you give them... Um, you, you treat them and you esteem them more important than yourselves. And a lot of problems that we have with humility is that we think it's a false, false sense of humility. We think um, it's when the fastest guy says in the class, oh, I'm not that fast. Oh, that person's so humble, right? I'm actually kind of slow. Listen, humility does not mean that you're not good at what you do. Humility is an accurate assessment of yourself. 
Jesus was the most humble. But he was also the most secure. He had an accurate assessment of himself. He was humble, but yet he told people that he was God. He told people that I'm God and that you must take up your cross and follow me. That if you're not uh, willing to lay down your rights, your family, your wealth in order to follow me, you're not worthy to, to follow me. See, you can be humble and still be the leader. You can be humble and tell people that you're good at something. But if you're really going to be humble, along with the accurate assessment, you're going to treat people more important than yourself. And not just people who are more important, but you're going to treat everyone with respect. And lastly, let me close with this as we wrap this up on humility. Those who don't know Jesus are allowed to live as if they don't know Jesus. Let me repeat that. Those who don't know Jesus, they're allowed to live as if they don't know Jesus. I think Christians are some of the most self-righteous, most legalistic people on the face of planet Earth. Why are we expecting non-Christians, non-believers to behave and to act and to think like Christians and as believers? You can't blame, uh, you can't get angry, you can't get frustrated at a dog for, for barking. You can't get frustrated at an eagle for flying. You can't um, get angry and frustrated at a horse for running. In the same way, we can't get angry at those who don't know Christ when they live their lives as if they don't know Christ because they don't. Now, I'm not saying be a coward and be passive. What I am saying is be be. Have, and we'll learn about this next week about wisdom and choosing the battles, right? And having discernment of what we're willing to stand for and what we're, we're willing to um, let people have the liberty to do. But when we have co-workers and they take the name of God in vain, you can't, you know, they're not Christians. They don't know Jesus and they don't believe and they haven't given their lives to, and to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, if they use um, God's name in vain, you guys say, hey, the Bible says you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Especially if you start quoting Old Testament or King James. Bruh, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't get mad at them if they're not living like Christians. If your coworker has a living boyfriend or they're living with their girlfriend or they have kids, um, children outside of marriage, you can't be mad at them, well, you should really get this right because the Bible says that no fornicator shall inherit the kingdom of God. Do you want to inherit the kingdom of God? Then stop fornicating. You can't, <laughs> we can't do that. And, and Daniel, he was willing to choose his, 
chooses battle. He was willing to respect. He had the humility to recognize um, where people are at in their in their personal faith and their personal walk with God. And one of the things that negatively has uh, infiltrated and has crept into the church is this: that we have mission drift, where we moved away from persuasion and from winning um, people to Christ, and we've declared cultural warfare. Over time, we, we moved away. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a sense of a, a cultural war, but whenever we, those we interact with who don't know Christ, and we think of them as enemies, um, then we're, they're going to be defensive rather than whenever we approach them with the idea that we're under a war, rather than our goal is to persuade them, everything shifts and we begin to consider and count them as an enemy. And you don't win very many enemies with warfare. When people are enemies of the cross, it's not that they are our enemies, it's that they are victims of my enemy. When people haven't surrendered to Christ, the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy their lives. We are to, um, as Second Timothy says, we are to uh, be gentle to them. We're not to be quarrelsome, but we are to be kind to them, and we must gently instruct them. And the way to treat people who have been captured by the enemy are leading this parade of doing Evil is to treat them with gentleness and kindness and to be everything that Daniel was in his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar and that is a genuinely humble man. We need, hum we need humility, amen? And as we prepare for communion this morning and receive the Lord's table, think about the humility of Christ. The God of this universe emptied himself, chose to uh, empty himself of his div uh, divine power and his rights and his privileges in order to serve us. The victorious almighty king became a suffering servant to, who is gentle and lowly and in spirit so that he can save us. So this morning, this is not a, an issue of try harder or be better or do more. This is an issue of submitting yourself to the Lordship of King Jesus. This is the issue of standing firm in the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our, humbling, our humble and suffering servant took on our sin, he took on our shame, he took on our judgment, he bore it all on the cross, he paid the price that we could not pay, he died our death on the cross that we deserved so that you and I could be set free and we could live under the kingdom of Jesus, that we would be a people full of grace, of truth, of kindness and gentleness, amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and prepare our elements this morning. The um, Bible says, For I received from the Lord, which I now deliver unto you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we remember your broken body. We remember the sacrifice and the price that you paid so that we can be free. Lord, your word says, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. So this morning, I pray, Lord, as we eat this bread, that we would walk in the freedom that is in Christ. Freedom, Lord, from pride. Freedom, Lord, from false, um, false humility. Freedom, Lord, from hubris and arrogance. Lord, as we eat this bread, would you give spiritual sustenance and strength that we could live for you? We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and eat of the bread. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of this as often as you eat. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's proclaim the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and let's drink of the cup together. Amen.